Riverhead Books presents Marlon and Jake Read Dead People, a podcast with Marlon James and Jake Morrissey. You know, I occasionally praise these dead people. Great Expectations is not the Dickens gateway drug I would recommend. You must be the first person in history to take Henry James to the beach. I'm a guy who read Born Peace by the Pool. <laughs> I will read a book because of his cover. Absolutely. I think there's an argument that straight people shouldn't write sex. At all? At all. Okay, you're wrong, but go ahead. <laughs> Hi guys, I'm Marlon James, which means the other guy must be Jake Morrissey. And That's we're me. back again with another episode of Marlon and Jake Read Dead People. And we're going to take down more dead authors and their book. You know, I occasionally praise these dead people. You totally do. And it's been a while since we've been here to sort of, you know, in the same room at the, at the same studio at the same time to talk about books and pretty much anything else. So it's always nice to see you in person and talk to you in person. But and you had a good idea, I thought, mm. which would t- be interesting for us to get caught up on what we've been reading since last we saw each other. We've had a life crowded with incident over mm-hmm. the course of our, our weeks apart, but you've been busy. But in the meantime, I want to know what you have been reading. I've been reading quite a bit, actually. I'm not going to talk about it a lot, but I read Tom Gunn's letters. Um, All right, explain who Tom, Tom Gunn, Gunn is. The, the, the British poet who died a few few years ago. And, oh my God, I'm blanking on the name of his great collection of poems. Just read his collective poems. Well, why did, why did you decide you wanted to read a, a dead poet's letters? Well, because the book was really big and he's hot. Now, do you mean hot like popular or hot like attractive? No, hot like, hot like hmm. <laughs> Mm, okay. So you're fanboying this, this I am poet. totally fanboying this dead dude. <laughs> but he's also a fantastic poet, and I've read his poetry before. And uh, he, he, oh God, what's the name of that guy who wrote Awakenings, who's also dead? I don't know. That guy, whatever his name is. He had <laughs> you, a thing. You came totally prepared for this. I, I wasn't even going to talk about it. I was just talking about, I was, you know, I said I wasn't going to talk about Tom Gunn, but, you know, pretty people always rule. Anyway... <laughs> So one of the books I read was Passing. Nella you Larson's did? Novel. Okay, I did as well. So it's interesting because, of course, I read it after seeing the film. Okay, I have not seen the movie. I've only read the book. What did you? All right, can you separate the two of them, the movie and the book? You can separate the two of them. The movie makes some choices that I, now that I've read the book, I'm not sure why. Okay. So those of you who don't know the, the book or the film, Passing is about two characters, two women, black, who could easily pass for white. And I forget the name of the two characters, but one of the characters does it occasionally. Yes, for very specific reasons. For very reasons. Yes. She wants to. She she's really hot, and she wants like a cup of tea in a hotel that would never allow a black right. person. Right. And, and this she, takes place in the forties. In the forties, yes. yes. And and that's what she does. And 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 on one occasion, she happens across one of her old childhood friends, who's also passing. But she's so passing, she's married to a white man who's a racist. And have a daughter, right? And she, of course, is not having another kid because she not she can't can't how. risk it, right? Right. So they they rekindle what was always a tempestuous friendship, and and it changes them in a lot of ways. One of the things that the the I think the book does more than the film is hint at the essential queerness of their relationship. That was my that was I think the I agree I think the novel comes across much more as their relationship was much more than just. Mm-hmm. friends or whatever yeah it's a kind of you know when you watch a movie and the two women are holding their pinky fingers a little too long <laughs> right the camera lingers a little bit too long on those details right, right? And then two weeks later one of them dies of swooning 
Okay. I was like, just call it the lesbian story and be done with it. Right. Well, it's also about these women who are choosing their own realities, mm-hmm. or at least I thought it was. I mean, I'm speaking as a white man who read this, but it's like, you know, how, how you are going to get through this life, how are you mm-hmm. going to manage what other people, particularly what other white people think of you is, you know, the choices that you make along the way and the compromises you're willing to give. Yeah, but it's interesting to see how often that backfires in, in all these, in, in, and, mm-hmm. and, how, and how it reveals certain things. For example, the character who is actually passing in real life really connects with other person's black maid. Yes. And the other and the black maid, as I recall, does not know. Is no. that right? Yes. So it's it's in, in one way she is living a fake life, but she's keeping it real. On her terms, yes. On her terms. Which which black people are drawn to mm-hmm. or darker skinned people are drawn to. Whereas the other person thinks they're authentic, they had the Negro thing, they lead these civil rights things way before its time, mm-hmm. but she's very big on keeping class alive. Yes. Well, it's interesting because because you're right that the sort of depth of color mm. that goes on in you know as you said you know the the you know the characters' lives and how they sort of think about themselves and each other is it, I mean I thought it was and the, on the novel I thought it was really interesting and really well handled. Yeah, but one extraordinary part of the novel that doesn't appear in the film and I don't understand why. Well, there are two things. One, one the the, the husband in the film is a Sarsgaard, <laughs> so I'm like, how can I hate a Sarsgaard? Okay, so you're blaming casting more than the actual. I'm sorry. Uh, why? Why? I, I can't. Why am I going to hate pretty people? But, <laughs> We're back there. Again. But th- but there's a there's this really really interesting scene in in passing where there are three women who can pass. Mm-hmm. There is our main character. I feel I should Google their names. You'll get it. Who is can pass and does it occasionally mm-hmm. for tea. Right. There is a person who is living a total fake life. And then there's a person in between who is not passing but has gained the approval of a white family. So she's married to a white husband. Right. Everybody knows who she is. Right. And she has this kind of freedom where I'm living white, but I ain't hiding that I'm black. Right. Not really. Right. She's kind of in a sense that she has a contempt for darker skinned people. So mm-hmm. she's by no means a good character. Mm-hmm. But she is she is an interesting contrast between with the three of them. And she's not in the film. At all. At That's all. Interesting. So it then just becomes a dynamic between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And I think the person who is most comfortable in their skin, but also the most rejecting of blackness is missing. And I think it I think the film loses something by not having a That's character. Interesting. All right. Which of the three which of the three characters do you think is happiest? That is a very good question. I actually think the per the, the person with the white husband who's See, not hiding it. Yes. On the other hand, oh yes, who's not hiding it. Yes, right. exactly. Because I think the woman who the, the character who is, you know, married to the white race, married to the scars guard, mm-hmm. is on paper has sort of the happiest or the most successful life. I think mm-hmm. lives with more fear of being found out and discovered, mm-hmm. and the, the sense of I'm not, I'm not living who I am. It's inauthentic somehow. Right, but then she goes to the black neighborhood and reconnects with her authentic self, and may have even, you know, her authentic self, her sexual self, her mm-hmm. independent self. Whereas the person who is living with them and is a part of, you know, who identifies as black can't connect. Right, right. It's a really interesting, at least for me, it's a really interesting novel because it does focus specifically on black women. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously, since I'm not one of those, it was a whole eye opener in terms of understanding what it is that, what it is the author was actually mm-hmm. sort of exploring and how in a, in an, in an, 
innately unequal world mm. in terms of color and also gender. How are these women navigating the experience of their own lives and how are they finding, you know, contentment or happiness mm. or satisfaction or or living without fear yeah. of being either discovered or, you know, have the shit beaten out of them by their husband. Yeah. But the thing that struck me, one of the things that struck me about it is passing in itself. How it was sort of, people were doing it if you could. It was secretive. You don't want to be found out. That crap didn't translate as a Jamaican. In Jamaica, in, in, in a lot of the, the, the former British colonies and so on, passing is celebrated. Really? Oh, my God. My, my family is passing. <laughs> we're big it, they're like They're like, why the hell would you not pass? Because it is a way Because in? I think we grew up thinking thinking whiteness is achievable. So when the immigrant comes to Jamaica and hears of one, I mean, I'm sorry, when the immigrant comes to America and hears of one drop, they don't know what the hell that means. Mm -hmm. What do you mean? What, what do you mean I'm not white? Interesting. I've been working towards whiteness for 200 years. Is that like and, and, and that is, that is a goal that is very clear. In other words, nobody's absolutely. shy about that. Nobody's shy about it. No Jamaican man is shy about the fact that he got a light skinned wife. When my dad, my dad became a lawyer and he became celebrated because he won five cases in one week. Wow. So everybody wanted him. I'll bet. And people sat down and had gave him the talk. Said, now is the part where you now also need to divorce this dark-skinned wife Jeez. and forget these dark-skinned children. <laughs> and you go find a light skin as light as you can and get more presentable progeny. Wow. So it's not like we're high. So the whole idea of you have to hide your past, I'm like, we don't do that. Wow. Now, is that a good thing? No. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely exactly. not. But it's, it's its own kind of terrible. But it was just this sort of that passing is something that is so cherished to the point where I can't guarantee you that a white family in Jamaica is white. Okay. And they can't either. Right. Now, now would it, because in, here in the United States, is it different because it is a or at least was, a predominantly white culture as opposed to a predominantly black one that you came from? I think maybe because it's a predominantly black one, but I also think because this sort of the idea that you would hide becoming white, that there's a price to be paid if you're mm -hmm. found to be passing. Whereas you the, in, in, in countries, and, and in Latin American countries, it's even worse. You were supposed to try to pass as much. I mean, I, I, I went to a play once, a Chile, Chile, and these seven white guys standing in a row, and they're like, and now we're going to line up in terms of lightness. Wow. I'm like, but y'all white. <laughs> but no, they could do it. Interesting. They had seven degrees of whiteness. And, and, that's, part, and that's part of the conversation. I mean, it's just part of it. It's wow. just, so it's like, of course you're going to pass, and why would it be a punishment for it? Right, right. But it's, yeah, it's interesting to me that you're sort of talking, because the sense of passing, at least in this country in the 40s, or in the, in the case of the novel, it's also about mitigating shame. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can do this, I can get away with this, but I don't want anybody to know. Or I do want anybody to know, and I'm mm. going to live with the consequences and maybe happier as a, as a result. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that there wasn't something, some, some sort of stigma attached to it. I mean, look at Bob Marley. Mm -hmm. I mean, Bob Marley, the white side of Bob Marley's family still kind of denies him. Really? I mean, wow. it was a very awkward moment in the Bob Marley documentary where they're kind of like, well, we know he's famous, and he's become the one of the most famous people in history. But he's still not a Marley. 
you know, he's still, I know they're trying to not make it seem like that, but they clearly were oh. like, yeah, but he still didn't do the one thing that made him one of us, which is to be 100% white. Right. We can't, yeah, that's. Even though those family, that family ain't 100%. There's no such thing as a 100% white family in Jamaica. Well, I'm not even sure nowadays. Yeah. I mean, and just in the in the world in general, but the whole life, but the whole idea. All right. So that's interesting that you, mm. all right. So, and you came across this novel just, I mean, in other words, you didn't. Did you decide to read it intentionally, or did you kind of stumble? Intentionally, across? because I watched the film. Okay, and then the, and then and my partner teaches it quite a bit. Okay, so the idea that you are you came across this, and then having seen it, mm-hmm. and then I guess really what I'm asking is: there a way to figure out if you? I guess really what I'm wondering is: did the did the movie make you want to read it, or did, were you or was it? Was there a sort of separate reason behind you picking no, it up? No, the movie made me want to read it. Okay. The movie made me want to read it. And I rarely do that. I'll just intentionally resist the film exactly. until... I do that a lot myself. Until I watch... Until I read the book. Yeah. This because I was just so curious and also because the fact that it was made. And apparently and what... Yeah, the, the fact it was made at all. And But you're right about the idea of... I mean, again, I haven't read the, watched the movie, but the idea that there are... They sort of made very deliberate kind of narrative choices. Yeah, but, but they also made choices with the casting. Like, I think a lot of people are complaining that those women couldn't pass. Because they, were, they, weren't, they weren't white enough? They weren't white enough. Like, the director, fully enough, who could pass. <laughs> I thought Rebecca Hall was white. Oh, interesting. But I, her point was, if, if, we, if she had casted people who the audience easily believe could pass, then you don't know the terror. That's associated with passing. You wouldn't you wouldn't be able to empathize with the fact that you would be found out at any minute. Interesting. Or somebody will see that you're actually not white enough. Interesting. Because if you look at, I mean, the idea that you know, all right, we're now going to have colorblind casting on you know, the theater and movies and television or whatever. But this is very the very specific casting decisions were made because of the color of the actor's skin. Mm-hmm. It's not like you could have, God forbid, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow play one of these women. <laughs> because she's just too damn white. Well, was, wasn't wasn't Julia Roberts supposed to play Harriet Tubman? Oh, you're right. Yeah, that was. Yeah, I kind of wish that. Could Let, be it. No, I think we're all better off that that wasn't made. All right. Well, so that you, you managed to read that. What did you read? Anything else in your in your I did, minutes? But we should talk of, about. We could do. Are going to end up talking for the bulk of it? So you should tell me what you've been reading. All right. Well, I will. I I, I, I have, have a back and forth thingy. All right. I'm totally happy. I re, I've been focusing on intentionally on on ghost stories and. F- funny stories i want to be i want to be not where i am i mean in the world so one of the things i read was and this is you know i'm i'm i find myself being sort of drawn to ghost stories as i said i came across a guy named and you probably have never heard of him montague rhodes jones montague is his first name i know it's almost as bad as like you know heathcliff or or something anyway i actually think in you know, from my two cents, that he's one of the kind of the great underappreciated writers of of ghost stories. He is, you know, he was a British, died in the British. What, of course, he, yeah. I was just going to say, it's not like he was, you know, somebody who was from. Can't France. imagine being the one American kid named Montague. <laughs> You probably still had that scarf and then most of the times your ass was kicked. Yes. And, you know, living quietly and friendless in a, you know, some unfortunate hovel somewhere. Anyway, he manages, I mean, he's, he's, he's over time and he's one of those sort of authors who kind of got, you know, as we moved on and, and we're now in a world where, you know, what a ghost story is, is, is very different. But he kind of talked about sort of way of kind of inputting or imbuing in kind of the, the sort of pastoral English landscape, the idea that this sort of... There's kind of a creepy malevolence around mm-hmm. us if we if only we kind of we pay attention in that in that way. I mean, one of his one of the favorite stories that I came across is called um, 
A View from a Hill. And it was published in 1925. It's the story of this kind of British guy who goes to this guy's house he doesn't know very well for a country house weekend. And they go looking out at, you know, the lovely landscape. It takes place, I think, in the southwest of England. Anyway, so the main character asks if he can borrow a pair of binoculars. And the owner of the house hands him this very weird, heavy box that he takes out. And it turns out to be this, this handmade set of binoculars mm. that had been created or, or designed by this, this friend of the, the, the homeowner. And so, so what he does is he go out, they go out and, you know, they're standing on a hill and they look, they, you know, he uses the binoculars and looks out across the, in the distance and he sees in a, a clearing where there's a hangman's gibbet standing that has a, that has a body hanging from it. And there are men in a cart and, you know, people milling around and he pulls the, you know, he sort of startled, he pulls the binoculars down and he looks out and it's not there. Mm. And as the sort of story, as the story evolves, he kind of investigates that apparently the place is called Gallows Hill. I don't want to go into too much detail, which of course I already am, mm. but it talks about the idea of seeing, seeing history or seeing bad stuff happening in a place that looks, you know, pretty and quiet and tranquil and mm. it, it's, it was one of the creepiest stories I've ever read for reasons that you don't, you realize, oh yeah, you don't really know what it is you're looking at. Yeah. You don't really see, you can't really see the, somebody's history or what happens to, at a place or whatever. So I found it, um, I found it actually surprisingly effective and it stayed with me for far longer than I expected. I haven't been creeped out by a story in a while. Because you're, you're so, we're so uncreepoutable. I think that's it. I think we're we're just so I mean, kind of used to the a lot of the language. Well, that's interesting to me because stuff. you it. This is not. I mean, this is not. You know, it's not blood spattered mutilation. We, mm. I have I have something else to talk about that in a minute. But <laughs> but the idea that you know it's not obvious. It's much more mm -hmm. sort of internal, which is the kind of stuff we talked about before with you know some of the writers. You know, some of the other dead writers we dealt with. Somebody like Henry James's Turn of the Screw, right? Which is not about what you see on the page. It's it's the impression that you're sort of given as mm -hmm. you read, and the kind of mounting kind of tension. So that's much more in that realm. It's not a this this story is not a you know it's not a slasher. It's not yeah. something violent or disgusting. Yeah, but a British countryside is by nature creepy. Well, let me ask you this: is is nature by nature creepy? Oh yeah, exactly. That's my. I mean, it doesn't have. In other words, it doesn't have to be the British countryside. I mean, I mean yeah, but let's slam the British. Why not? Yeah, but yeah, it's it's part of a huge part. I think of the kind of dread that's in a really good spooky story is the idea that nature itself is out to get you. Well, yes. I, I mean, I so want to talk about some of the other stuff we've we, that I <laughs> that I, I'm going to wait for a minute. But you're right. It's it's the sense of. The, or foreboding or that shit's going to get a lot mm -hmm. worse or that there's no way out of whatever it is. And I think a lot of the sort of shocker stuff that I grew up with in like the, you know, the 70s and 80s is like, mm. you know, Saw 26 or, mm. you know, Nightmare on Elm Street 49 or whatever. The idea that, okay, it's just let's hack off a hand mm -hmm. or it, that's shocking for a moment, but it's not openly, I think, scary. It's not scary. It's 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 the kind of you know the the, the torture porn thingy. Yes, exactly. It's, it's not. It's it's you want. I mean, there are people who use that and end up being genuinely creepy, like One Twenty Days of Sodom. I don't know that one. It's a film. It's, okay. Well, it's it's the sad as well. Oh, okay, okay. But yes. I, I was talking more of the Pasolini film. Okay. Which does where the shock genuinely creeps you out, mm -hmm. as opposed to you just going, "Ew, this is gross." Right. Exactly. 
exactly. And I think there there is is there is a there is a you know a talent to it. I think a really good scare, you realize almost all the elements are working to scare you. It's, totally. It's, it's 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 you know it's objective correlative really really working. If you don't have objective correlative, you really don't have a good horror story. Well, somebody, I mean, I was reading, preparing for this. Somebody was talking about the difference between horror and terror. Mm. And I think there is a difference. And right. I think part of it is how you how you build brick by brick the mm-hmm. sense of, you know, whatever you want to, you know, create. Foreboding, fear, trepidation, disgust, whatever it happens to be. And terror is, you know, in some ways is easier to pull off, in this, I think, in the sense that it's like, you know, okay, well, maybe, uh, well, I'm going to scare the shit out of you for five seconds as opposed to I'm going to sit with you Mm. and have it like and have the horror of what you're talking about or what happens Mm. kind of come at you in a way that is. And that's going to sort of stay with you. Yeah, I think terror. I mean, I'm trying to think of of, of like I think I think a lot of Alan Poe is actually terror, not horror. I agree. I agree with you. And that's why to me. Yeah, I get it. There's Mm. a there's a, you know, a beating heart behind a, you know, or a wall. Okay, Mm -hmm. I, I get it. Scary, you know, terrifying, yeah, but it's not. Anyway, I, the stuff that sort of stayed with me are mm-hmm. are more like, oh yeah, this is this is unendurable. This is mm-hmm. eternal. This is something that you can't get away from, or whatever. I think that to me is more is more unsettling and more mm-hmm. and more scary. Yeah, but I do. I mean, I don't necessarily. I don't think I necessarily put horror over terror. Well, I mean, I think it depends on. I mean, it depends on what you're looking for. Mm-hmm. What, I mean, you know, we can talk about living writers who, you know, one yeah. do one and one do whatever. But I mean, you know, is is Frankenstein horror? Is it terror? It's more like terror. It's like the birds. I think the birds is terror. Yes, and in my opinion, less effective because of that. Because mm-hmm. it's like, oh yeah, a bunch of birds that I don't really know why they're attacking. <laughs> You know, Suzanne Plachette and Rod Taylor and Tippi Hedren, you know, in a town on the coast of California in the 60s. I don't mean to belittle the movie. I know there are people like it. Really, that wasn't belittling at all. (laughs) Well, I just, I mean, there's so much, so much better Hitchcock, in my opinion, including Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, which Mm -hmm. I would argue is horror in some ways. I mean, I mean, I'm literally in the middle of reading Rebecca. Yeah, there is, there is a sense of serious dread. I was going to say, it's not horror in the sense of, you know, a classic horror mm-hmm. story. But there, I, I agree, there's there's dread, there's suspense, there's the sense of of being caught and trapped mm-hmm. in a way, in ways that you, you know, as the novel unfolds. Mm-hmm. She's really good, I, I, and, and it's something I'd probably, because I teach tension a lot. I spend like, I'll spend like almost a week on tension in creative writing good. class. Good, that's, that's hugely important, I think. And I think one, one thing she does is she can imbue something that ends up being quite harmless. Mm-hmm. Like when we first meet, I think it's Ben, or the second time we meet Ben. Mm-hmm. He's harmless, but the second time we meet him, he's some shadow in the... Yeah, the hackles go up. Okay, it's something like, bad's going to happen. It's like, I saw the shadow and the shadow moved. <laughs> right. there, I was watching this movie, Horror in the High Desert, a mockumentary thing. And I'm like, oh, whatever, not a mockumentary. <laughs> you should ask the people watching me how many times I screamed. <laughs> because it was genuinely scary? or Because I'm like, I'm watching them, the guy watching the house. And they're watching the house. And then the house stoops down. <laughs> And I am screaming, okay. and everybody's like, "What? What? You didn't see that? You didn't see that?" 
All right. Well, somebody. Mm. I mean, I, this is not the point of this podcast, but mm. I mean, like, like the when you're talking about the birds, but the idea of of how something like Psycho mm -hmm. occurs. It's. I mean, a lot of it's suspense. I mean, a lot of Rebecca's suspense. But I mean, the idea that. All right. I want I as the author want to manipulate or prompt a response from you, the reader, and that's slightly different. I think on on the screen that it is on the mm. page. Yeah, but I also think terror. Not to belabor this, because we have other books to talk about. Is that I think terror can sometimes be scarier than horror because terror feels like it's within the realm of human possibility. Okay. Like Texas Chainsaw Massacre to me is terror. Because you think it could happen. Because it could happen. Okay. And it kind of did because it's based on right. whatever that guy's name is. Right. That the that a ser that a really good serial killer thing like Silence of the Lambs or Red Dragon, the mm -hmm. novel. Mm -hmm. Oh, we can't really talk about it because the guy's still alive. Right. Sorry, guy. Sorry. <laughs> but anyway. But we would say positive things if. But we, but uh, but but even I mean just you know that kind of the killer on the loose narrative, or even a really really creepy whodunit. Mm-hmm. That can actually you you're you are scared because you know the evil that human actual people can do. Right, that's true. That's true. Is the author of The Exorcist still with us? I'd be very surprised. William Peter. Okay, the reason I the reason I bring him up. Sorry, is, we can always edit this part out. Okay, I was. I'm pretty sure he's he's dead. Hold on, I'm gonna quickly Google and we. Oh, there we dead. go. Okay, good. You dead? Okay, well, one of the things, one of the novels that I, or for me, the. The scariest novel I've ever written, I've ever read, is *The Exorcist* by William Peter Blatty, because, in the end, the devil wins. Mm -hmm. He gets he gets a soul. In the case of *The Exorcist*, it's the it's the 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 police the the priest who is having doubts about mm -hmm. whether or not there's a god, and he saves the the little girl Reagan. And I found that, and maybe this is because I have a you know complicated view of of you know religion and and all faith and all that stuff. But I found that shocking, mm. which you know, and other people are like, oh my gosh, they used green, you know, they used pea soup for Linda Blair's scene where she throws up all over her mother. You know, mm. in other words, they're they're talking about sort of details about the movie as opposed to the genuine sense of of evil one in that case. Mm -hmm. And that's that's what I thought was sort of scary and and terrifying. Mm. More so than than the birds, you know. Sorry Tippy you got attacked in a <laughs> in a in a phone booth or Suzanne or whoever it was, but it's not it's not scary for me as far as I'm concerned. Mm. One day birds are gonna attack your ass in Jersey. I'm, you know what? I'm sure it happens, but it's like, you know what? I'll be ready. I'll, mm -hmm. I'll be ready. I'll be prepared. All right. So, what else do you want to talk about? I have two other books I can mention. You know, it's almost. I mean, people will be shocked to know that I just now finished Jesus's Son. Okay, we need to stop the presses to use an old-fashioned. I know. Voice. I, I just. I mean, I was gonna say it's sort of like being in the '90s and saying you haven't read Raymond Carver. <laughs> All right, well, explain explain to the one listener who well, doesn't Jesus, know. <laughs> Jesus' son, Dennis John, it wasn't his first book at all, wasn't it? I don't it? think so. No, no, but it was his collection of stories and basically what made him famous. Mm -hmm. And it has some quite brilliant stories in there. Emergency, which I knew before. Okay. And uh, he, you know, it's it's at this point, I think people read these writers to figure out what the big deal was. In other words, who hadn't discovered them on right. their own. Okay. And because, yeah, you can, you, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I'll read Carver mm -hmm. and I'll read the stuff, the, the, the garden list. You read stuff. the edited or the unedited part? I read both of them. Do you really? Yeah. Do you have a- I actually teach both of them. Oh, like, interesting. I'll teach, I'll teach a small good thing and the, is it the bath? I can't forget the original, the garden list version. I don't know either. 
Anyway, I'm not going to talk about Carver, but it's it's there is a certain kind of astringency mm-hmm. that that has that infected literature after Carver, which to me just means he just didn't write enough. Okay. It's like you know, there's a difference between edited and just meager. Absolutely, and I will I will stand <laughs> by that statement till my till my dying day. Absolutely. Yeah. Whereas there is a certain kind of flourish with with Johnson in okay. these stories. Okay. There is a, there's a lot of risk taking. It may be a little, I mean, I, I think some people may think it's showing off. Well, now, did you expect to like it as much as you did? Or did you expect to dislike it as much as you did? I liked it a, a lot. I, I did like it. I expected, I did expect to like it. Okay. Because that, I think, is a higher bar in some way. Yeah. But I didn't expect it to be as much fun. Oh, good. As as I as as you thought it was okay good was and uh, yeah it's 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 it is I can see why it is a it is a kind of a foundational work and in ways you didn't in in ways I guess really what I'm asking is did this how did it surprise you the heart Mm -hmm. it surprised me a lot of stories at heart it surprised me how actually how experimental some of these stories were see that was my thought too I thought this was. Risky is the wrong term, but it's mm. like, oh yeah, he tried stuff. Yeah, and I actually liked that sort of willing to experiment mm-hmm. and willingness to sort of, you know, well, I'm not. I mean, he may know what he was doing, but I, he, he surprised me because I didn't. A lot of the, a lot of what I read in that I didn't expect. I wonder though if it's the kind of stuff I'd tolerate in a novel. Oh, that's interesting. Like, you mean as individual sort of standalone pieces? As in standalone pieces, yes. But would I be? Would I want some of those experiments to go on for four hundred pages? No, 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 <laughs> not at all. Why would you want to? No, you don't. I think. I think part of this is. I mean, he. I, in my opinion, he found the right format mm-hmm. in the stories because okay, I can do this. I can play with this. I can, you know. But I don't have to. In other words, I'm writing a song, not a symphony. That's mm-hmm. a pompous way of putting it. But it's like, all right, let's try this. And then the next story, it's going to be very straightforward or it's going to be funny or it's going mm-hmm. to be whatever. It's, it's going to be something else. Yeah, but to me, it's up there with airships. Barry oh, Hannah's really? Book, which I, I, I used, used to be my gold standard for that sort of white male short story collection thing. <laughs> when you put it like that, it just makes <laughs> it just sounds so good. Yeah, let's <laughs> let's 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 teach some more white male short story writers, shall we? Let's go from there. Okay. All right. Well, that's interesting that I, I'm, and, and how did you come, did you decide, did, in other words, was this a choice you made or did it, was it? Was it, a, it was just laying around. See, that's what I'm wondering. I think sometimes when you see, when you find a book, when mm-hmm. you come across it, it has a lot to do with at least how I like it or how I find it. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, I have to read this and I no. don't really, I don't really necessarily want to do that. Really. What else did you read? Lost Illusions, the Balzac. Wow. Oh. That's a little different than, than Dennis Johnson. It's very different. Now, I have not read him in 5,000 years. Is, <laughs> is it worth going back to? It is worth going back to. I quite like Balzac. He's, um, he's one of those kind of 19th century guys. You sort of think, oh, yeah, once I get past Dostoevsky, once I get past Chekhov, once I get past Hugo, once mm. I get past Dickens, then I'm going to give wow. Balzac a, a, you know, some time. I see how high you rate him on your scale. Well, it's one, yeah, it's a little bit like, you know, and I don't mean this to sound critical, but it will. He's, I feel like he's one of those sort of dull but worthies. You know, people say that about Trollope. You're which I could not, dis- the, which I could not disagree. I could not disagree more uh-huh. with, but I, I totally understand. Yes. I, yeah. I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm not about to give up Flaubert for him. 
Okay. See, that's my point is that he's, yeah. he's fine. Um, would you give up? Well, we, don't, no, play, we don't need to play that game, but I mean, would you? My, I, would give, I would have given up Maupassant for him. Oh, I'm sorry. Give up Maupassant for Dennis Johnson. Give up <laughs> Maupassant for Jake Morrissey. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is, is it's not somebody that I'm going to reach for. No. And I, and I get, you know, the thing is, the problem with my house is that there are so many books lying around that a book can literally just be there. I think that's, that's not, that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. And I'm like, okay, it has a purple span. Let's grab it. <laughs> A also, a movie spot. was coming out, and I didn't want to watch a movie without reading the book. <laughs> All right. And I, I actually quite liked it. I think one of the reasons why I liked it is most of my 19th century historical books tend to be British. Yes. And if they're not British, it's some Russian. Okay. I 100% understand. So I, you know, I mean, yes, Madame Bovary, great. Of course, it's great. It's fantastic. But I, you know, if, initially, I actually read it thinking about that, you know, another podcast we're doing about cities. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm not talking about it for that one. Just the 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 idea of again of how how high society uses, abuses, and destroys and throws away. Well, that's somebody. basically, and I know you hate me to bring this up. Yeah. That's what Henry James and Edith Wharton wrote about a lot. Yeah, but the thing about about Lucien Lucien Chardon is that he's not a really a nice guy. Okay. He is he is kind of the hero, but you're like, dude, you're kind of a douche, <laughs> kind of an asshat. You, okay, you kind of had that coming, you know. And then spoiler alert, he just says, "I can't handle this anymore. I'm going to kill myself." And I'm like, "Wise decision." Yes, totally. Now but then he doesn't. I, anyway, well, I, oh, that's interesting. That, that spoiler alert. Yeah. Um, how long is this novel? It's it's a trilogy. Of course it is. You have the nerve to criticize Anthony Trollope. It's like, oh yeah, it's a trilogy. It's a trilogy. Okay, kids. Yeah, we He's even shittier in the second book. <laughs> Stop me if you heard this before. All right. All right. Well, now, do you think that having come, having gone to Balzac, mm-hmm. would you go back again, or will, you, will there be space? I mean, I'm very interested in his human comedy thing he did. Mm-hmm. I haven't read Old Gorio, which I hear is his masterpiece. Yes, I have heard that as well. I would. I think I, you know, I mean... Can I think of 10 more novels I'd read before that? Sure. Yes. Including The Duke's Children. Yeah. And also, can I think of 10, I mean, maybe not 10, five more French authors I would read before I would read Balzac again? Yes, I would. Now, yeah. I'm not saying he's not good. Don't get me wrong. He's not at the top of my pile. I'm like, there's a lot of Flaubert you should read first. That's fair. That's fair. And also- A lot of Zola you should read first. Okay. The Count of Monte Cristo. Yeah. I, and anyway, we don't need to go into the the the- Rabbit hole of French, you know, mid nineteenth century French authors you should read, but there yeah. are, the, yes, it is British. I mean, your experience is similar to mine. A lot of British, a lot of Russian, not as much French, and I'm okay as a as a boy with. Don't a, come for me, French people. With a well, with French background myself, I'm not saying they're not they're not worth reading. It's just mm. something that I'm not de- not going to pick up. I'll, I'll pick off, I'll pick off the birds before I pick off before <laughs> I pick up a ball sack. Let's put it that way. Let's put it that way. All right. Well, those are those are actually. Now, and this is obviously when you're, you know, in your free time. So, mm. so have there ever been any recently novels that you, or, or actually going forward, looking, mm. for, looking at any intentional novels or books that you would yeah. pick up to read? Well, I'm actually going to reread Savage Detectives, actually. All right. That's a good idea. Uh, largely because, you know, I, I mean, there are books that I read while I'm writing. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and, and I think it's something to, to uh, there's something I will pick up from revisiting that novel. Good. I think that's an excellent idea. Not that you've asked my opinion at all, <laughs> at all. Well, I want to mention, and I know we, I know we have, you know, sort of time constraints here, but I want to mention two books that I have been reading or read. When I was talking about a ghost story, I actually 
had had heard things as a kid about this novel called Hell House, mm-hmm. which was published in the seventies by a guy named Richard Matheson. He's one of those writers that I shouldn't have I should read more of. He was like, not like not really like Peter Matheson. Or no, he this is a guy. He's the author of I Am Legend. Okay. Um, he wrote a bunch of Twilight Zone episodes, including mm-hmm. the one I think with William Shatner, where he sees the creepy thing on the plane on the plane uh, mm-hmm. wing. I think it's Nightmare at twenty thousand feet or whatever. And it, you know, this this is you know. So I picked up a copy of of Hell House, which was as I said published back in I think nineteen seventy one. Mm-hmm. And at the time, and I will, and I'm framing it specifically this way. At the time, Stephen King called it the scariest haunted house novel ever written. Mm-hmm. It is not the scariest haunted house novel ever. <laughs> but you know, I mean, you know, the well, the reason one of the reasons I'm drawn to it is that it it's the same conceit as podcast favorite, The Haunting of Hill House by mm-hmm. Shirley Jackson, in the sense that there is a a creepy old house in New England. This one is called Belasco House in Maine, not in not in uh, uh, other you know unnamed New England, but it's it's. It's you know, sort of wasp territory. It's totally wasp territory, and it's a. It's the point is, you know, a, a a doctor and three other people go into a house to find out whether or not, in fact, they can prove scientifically that there are such things as ghosts. And all you know, as you would expect, you know, the house has been abandoned and it's been sealed for forty years because really, really bad shit happened there mm. back in that and and which. Unlike Shirley Jackson in The Haunting of Hill House, which the stuff is alluded to and you get a sense that bad stuff went on, in this case, the bad stuff is totally on the page. Mm-hmm. It's almost like I'm Norman. Horror. Well, yes. It's almost like Norman Mailer wrote, you know, kind of a commercial novel and was like as, as kind of abusive mm-hmm. and brutal to women as you could possibly imagine. So it's that kind of, it's that kind of Tough novel. Tough guys don't dance, but horror. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, my point in all this is that it's it's you know it's I I kind of ended up I read it and ended up sort of throwing it across the room. It's 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 terrible. I think the literary definition yeah. is it's, Hell House wasn't a giveaway. Well, I, see, the thing is, I expected it to be, I expected it to be smart at least, mm-hmm. and it wasn't. It was I thought I thought I found it glibly written and kind of flabbily plotted. The dialogue works, I think, but it's like, oh yeah, you're really really. It would not have been published today because it's. It's basically a white guy being really offensive about women, mm. you know, sexual assaults and all that stuff. All, you know, to the attempt to be, I guess, scary. Anyway, it it irritated the shit out of me. Oh, also, this is the kind of the, the line that sort of struck me. The 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 novelist writes that the novel that the house is is the Mount Everest of haunted houses. Now I don't even know what that means. <laughs> it's tall. It's cold. There's snow on the roof. I don't get it. I mean, I understand you're saying it's yeah, it's the there are dead the, bodies on the roof. Yes, exactly. I mean, it's that kind of it's that kind of novel. The Mount Everest. Yeah. So I anyway, it once not to, not that you need maybe uh, it's like the Pompeii of haunted house novels, or maybe it's just like you know the bad the bad you know first draft of haunted no, house. You should find a bad metaphor. That's what you should say. Totally. <laughs> The oil slick of haunted houses. Ju- yeah, it's just a yeah, that's true. Anyway, so the I house of haunted house. I like that one much yeah, the better. Old house. So that was, I mean, once again, not that you need any more um, uh, support from me, Shirley Jackson, but the haunting of Hill House is much better. <laughs> anyway, before we go, I do want to mention one other book that I actually that I actually really enjoyed reading. When I mentioned earlier that I was interested in humor, I came across and and reread the the play Arsenic and Old Lace. Have you ever read that? I've seen it. Okay. 
And it was written by a, a playwright you've never heard of named Joseph Kesselring. And it, he's, you know, it was this huge hit when it came out in the 40s. And it's the story of a, you know, of a drama critic who has this crazy family and these charming little old lady aunts mm-hmm. who um, poisoned these lonely old men in with arsenic and strychnine and cyanide, I think, in their elderberry wine. Mm-hmm. They die and they bury him. They bury the bodies in their basement. Because one of her, I think their children or nephew, I think Teddy, who thinks he's Theodore Roosevelt, is digging the Panama Canal in the basement of the of the house. So there's in there's a family member who's a sociopath who's trying to kill the other brother. Anyway, it's a it's it sounds like the worst idea ever for <laughs> a for a comedy, and yet there's a kind of weird sweetness to it and mm-hmm. charm, and it's really funny on the page. And as you said, it was made into a it was made into a movie in the. It's a really charming film. Yes, with Cary Grant, Cary Grant yeah, and right. and a couple of, some, basically actors from the forties. You probably yeah, might have recognized. It's the it's the highest body count I've ever seen in a film that I would call a charming little. Exactly, picture. it's you know it's 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 one you know they've she kill they kill eleven twelve or thirteen you know nice men and they're so kind of unapologetic about it and mm. and and it's like the the ladies you would go to for halloween to get you know the homemade popcorn balls back when you could do that mm. who at the same time are in fact you know killing their boarders and burying them in the basement so it's it's kind of hilarious and horrible if you think too much about it but it's mm-hmm. actually it was a really fun read you know it's is it a summer read probably not but it was it was a really fun read that kind of took me exactly where i wanted to go I've, as, as I've seen a film, and I think I've seen a stage version of it. Well, there's a funny part about the in the play where the character of the the sociopath who's trying to kill the other the family member, his name is Jonathan, had plastic surgery, and he his plastic surgery was botched, and he ends up looking like Boris Karloff, which was a, the sort of an inside joke on stage because the guy who played Boris Karloff, the guy who played it in the the character in the play, was Boris Karloff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when he comes out of, you know, looking like Boris Karloff, it's like, oh, my God, it is Boris Karloff. So it was what kind of a funny inside <laughs> joke. But they they use a different actor for it on, in the play. But anyway, I mean, the movie. But it's it's a, it's funny. And I think it's it has a weird kind of sort of sweetness to it that I didn't expect. Cool. Anyway, you want to uh, take us out here, as they say? All right, so that's it. Thanks for listening. Let us know what you think at rereaddeadpeople at prh.com. And you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can follow Riverhead Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for updates on books by living authors like Marlon James. And we'll have links to the show notes in the books that we've talked about in this episode. Good. So that's it. So go read some dead people. I mean, read some living people too, but dead people can't come for you on Twitter. Listening to Marlon and Jake means my to-read list gets longer every week. Enter Libro FM. Libro FM lets me purchase audiobooks directly from my favorite local bookstore. I can pick from more than 185,000 titles, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. I get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But I'm part of a different story. One that supports community. And you can be too. Marlon and Jake Read Dead People listeners can get a special offer. 
two audiobooks for the price of one with your first month of membership. That's two audiobooks for just $14.99 with the code Marlin and Jake. Visit Libro.fm to get started. Now go read some dead people. Offer only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S. 